Raise the Bar, led by the National Security Agency and National Cross-Domain Strategy Management Office, is raising the security architecture bar for cross-domain solutions and a formal solution specification is anticipated in the coming months. Join Forcepoint and cross-domain experts on March 19th in Arlington, Virginia for insights into the objectives and guidelines of Raise the Bar, best practices for evaluating and implementing cross-domain solutions, and tips on how to ensure your agency is Raise the Bar compliant. Please note this event is open to government attendees. For more information, visit the events page listed in CyberScoop's daily newsletter. Welcome to Securiosity for February 22nd. My name is Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel. Another week full of InfoSec news, tons of nation-state-related stuff. Russia, North Korea staying busy as always, and plus another new APT group to talk about. Can't wait to hear the name. In our interview, we talked to Mohamed Jabrell from NormShield about his company, CyberScoring, and their latest round of funding. Speaking of NormShield, they were part of a Big week in business news when it comes to cybersecurity. Lots of money flying around on the public and private sector side. So let's get into it. Infamous Russian hacking group Fancy Bear is at it again. Microsoft found that this time the group is targeting think tanks ahead of big parliamentary elections in Europe. The company found that from September to December 2018, there were attempted hacks on 104 accounts belonging to employees of German Marshall Fund, Aspen Institutes in Europe, and German Council on Foreign Relations. Two of the organizations contacted by CyberScoop said the efforts to breach their think tank were unsuccessful. Greg, wherever there's an election, there seems to be fancy bear. Yeah, they... This is what they do. I mean, this is the norm. I'm not surprised by this story at all. If there's a place where they can subvert democracy in the West, they're going to show up and try to hack the people that are building, you know, those democratic policies. You could swap out the dates and the think tanks and put in American, French, UK, I don't know, whatever country that you want that's in the West. Yeah. And if there's an election, it seems like they're going to try to figure out some information. It's espionage. I mean, welcome to the new norm. This is just what it is. Yeah. Uh, I'm not surprised by uh, anything here. Uh, I should say that, honestly, what I'm surprised by the most is the fact that the two organizations that we contacted said they were unsuccessful, that Russia was unsuccessful in actually trying to pull this off. So there's a little bit of sea change there in that these hacks aren't always working now. Seems kind of surprising. Yeah, but, you know, hey, at the same time, Russia will probably switch up their tradecraft and figure out some other way to, yeah. to get into these systems. Again, new norm. So nation-state hackers from China, Russia, and elsewhere spent last year updating their tradecraft and tightening their focus on espionage targets, according to a new CrowdStrike report examining the evolution of cyber espionage in 2018. Russian hacking groups, including Fancy Bear, moved the fastest, and their favorite targets included Ukrainian military and government organizations, NATO-affiliated targets, technology companies supporting Western military agencies, and entities involved in investigating the poisoning of Sergei Skripal, the former double agent who gathered intelligence about Russia. Once inside, it took Russian hackers an average of 18 minutes and 49 seconds to move from their initial entry point to another area of the hacked ecosystem. North Koreans, who were also looked at, 
took an average of two hours and 20 minutes, while Chinese agents took four hours. Bringing up the rear, the mean time for Iranian actors was five hours and nine minutes, and cyber criminal gangs took nearly 10 hours. Jen, what's your biggest takeaway from this information? Apparently, the Russians are really great at this. I wonder what um, U.S. hackers come in at. That would be interesting to find out. <laughs> the the nation-state hacking Olympics time trials, right? if, if you will, <laughs> to see who is uh, the fastest. I thought it was interesting that criminal gangs took nearly 10 hours because we talk about these criminal gangs so much and how easy they can get into systems, and yet it took they're them... They're not as the, good, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, it, they're just, you know, uh, a, a gang of independent mercenaries that... Uh, it takes a while for them to hop from, you know, system to system or subsystem to subsystem. So it's really interesting and shows that when we talk about these groups being sophisticated actors, what makes them so sophisticated is the fact that they can move fast. I mean, 18 minutes and 49 seconds, that's half of this podcast. I mean, think about that. Yeah. From from the point of intrusion, this podcast is longer than it takes Russian hackers to move from system to system inside your enterprise. That that's some dangerous stuff. I right mean, they're there. really clearly they're really great at picking the people who sort of join the team and also have amazing training. If you're in the NSA and you hear this number and you're listening to this podcast, there you go. You have your benchmark that you probably know how fast you guys operate. But maybe you can move faster. And if you want to tell us how fast you can operate, we'd love to hear I'd it. I'd absolutely love to hear that. <laughs> I would welcome that conversation. So the lower chamber of the Australian Parliament was breached by a state actor, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, told lawmakers this week. Anonymous sources in Australian media speculated that China could be responsible. Beijing vehemently denied involvement. Meanwhile, an Australian man has made unverified claims that he was responsible. Western legislators have been the target of suspected nation-state hacking operations before, notably when alleged Russian government-linked operatives breached German parliament in 2015. So who do you believe here, Greg? Um, I, I don't know. I think the attribution for this has been something that has been discussed all week and has kind of been a mess. There were reports out of the gate that it was China, like we talked about. And then there were some other reports that Iran was behind it that didn't really check out. And then there was this wild... Facebook clip that our reporter Sean Lingus found of just some dude sitting in his car in the Australian outback claiming that things got too hot and that he needed to leave and that you can't really identify where he is just by the the shot alone but it's he says that he is the lone wolf singer single Mm -hmm. hacker operative which it, it, it was a bizarre video to watch completely unverified but yeah, I honestly don't know who to believe, and I don't think it's worth believing anybody because, you know, the, the attribution stuff is I mean, always hard. Do we know how long it took? Because I think we can take an educated guess right, now there, that we there know you go. Yeah, there you go. Well, look, look, at, look at the time trials and look at the logs to see how fast they were moving across systems, and that might be able to give you an idea of who is responsible for this. But again, and just going back to the story that we led off with, too, public policy debates. Yep. Shocking that the nation-state hackers have shown up. In other nation-state hacking group news, Checkpoint Technologies published findings on Tuesday in which its researchers were observing what seemed to be a coordinated North Korean attack against Russian entities. The company cautions that it's, quote, problematic to definitively pinpoint who's responsible for such attack, though their analysis reveals intrinsic connections to the tactics, techniques, and tools used by 
the North Korean APT group known as Lazarus. Jen, no honor among these thieves and hackers, it seems like. I mean, look, given <laughs> how quickly um, Russia is able to move in, in sort of hacking and in, across systems, it seems like we all need to just gang up against them. Every country in the world needs to just hit Russia. Yeah. Yeah, there is that thought right away that's like, wait a minute. We look at it through the lens of the way that America views adversaries and these two mm -hmm. countries are adversaries. But at the same time, we've seen numerous stories that North Korea just doesn't care. They don't. <laughs> they're going to go after whoever or whenever they need to in order to support their yeah. regime. And if it's going to be their neighbors, so be it. They've been cut out from any type of economy whatsoever. So they're going to hack whatever they need to hack in order to get the money to fund whatever it is that they need to fund. So whether it is Russia, China, uh, us, whatever, they're, they're, they're going to take it. I mean, they're, they're yeah. hackers, so they're thieves. And again, no honor among thieves. So I'm not surprised that they finally turned their sights onto Russia. Yeah, we all should turn our sights onto Russia. Continuing on the Russian front, Splunk announced Monday it will no longer do business in Russia. The company didn't say why. However, to reach Russia's market, technology companies often must obtain a certification from the government and source code review might be included in part of the process. Companies like Symantec, McAfee, and SAP have allowed Russian officials to review their product source code to search for any vulnerabilities. Greg, is that a wise move? I think it's Splunk trying to plant a flag on where they're going to get their business. And I guess that is on, you know, the Western side of the world. I mean, yeah. this, this is a big thing. We've also seen, I think HP was also another big one that allowed Russian officials to poke around on their stuff. And hey, it, it's, it's a business decision. You either, you know, you weigh the cost and the benefit, just like any other business, and go, all right, I'll, I'll pop open the hood because Russia has X amount of dollars that can go into our coffers. Uh, I do know that a lot of security experts love Splunk because it allows them to digest data in, you know, in all different types of ways. So maybe there are some angry Russian security engineers or, you know, some, some network analysts that are going to have to rely on some other tools, but it's the internet. They'll figure something out. There's always another tool out there, I feel like. I, it, this is just business. And so are there dangers um, to the U.S. companies using um, Symantec, um, given that Russia was able to review their source code? Um, that's been a widely talked about debate for years because, yeah, now that they've seen the source code, they sort of know where the holes are and they know how to either get around these systems or they know how to find the vulnerabilities or how to evade detection. So... Maybe that's why Russia is able to um, have, what, the fastest or second fastest record in breaking through systems. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, another thing that you could talk about adding to that number as well. Um, but, I mean, at the same time, Symantec, McAfee, SAP, these companies, they know what they're getting into, so they might be able to go back and patch these holes after doing their own source code reviews. Like, I don't think that these companies are going in blindfolded. Like, they know what they're getting into. Oh, so sure. I think that they I'm take sure. their precautions and and make sure that everything checks out. But, again, it, it's a business decision. You're going to be able – we see this happen all the time, whether it's inside America, inside Russia, whatever. Your companies are going to do what they have to do in order to, to make money. So 
it, it, it's, it's an argument that I don't think is going away, but um, I think that Splunk did a, a, a very wise thing in going, you know, we're just not going to crack open our source code. We're just not going to do business in Russia. Like our source code is our secret sauce and we don't need to expose that in order to make millions of dollars from the Russian market. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a savvy business move. So one more piece from Russia. Global <laughs> revenue for Kaspersky Lab increased by 4% last year, despite sales in North America falling by 25%. The privately owned Kaspersky reported unaudited revenue of $726 million in 2018, thanks mostly to growth in the Middle East, Turkey, and Africa. But the company also acknowledged the challenging geopolitical situation that resulted in an overall slowdown in the North American market, where sales fell by a quarter. Kaspersky's sales announcement offers a glimpse at how scrutiny from the U.S. government has affected the company. President Trump in 2017 signed legislation prohibiting the use of Kaspersky software on computers and devices on military and civilian networks. Jen, I mean, this is just uh, a flip side of the Splunk conversation. I mean, you can see what happens when a company has to capitulate to the government or, you know, Lose that revenue. And yet their sales increased. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and that goes to show you the geopolitics that goes into this. Okay. Kaspersky would like to do business in North America. They're clearly not going to. Yeah. So they need to go find business elsewhere. Looks like they did it. They did, yeah. 27% growth in the Middle East and Africa. I mean, it's pretty good. And I imagine, you know, Spunk will find more customers too based on their policies. So. Right. And th- there you go. If and there's a business opportunity for Kaspersky that if, you know, you need a way to sift through data. Okay. Eugene, new product for you. <laughs> go, go make, go make Kaspersky, go make Kaspersky version. And there's more money for you. A new hacking group researchers have dubbed Blind Eagle, maybe it should be High Eagle, is carrying out targeted attacks against Colombian government agencies, financial companies, and corporations with a presence in the South American country active since April 2018. The group poses as Colombian institutions like the National Cyber Police and the Office of the Attorney General to steal intellectual property, according to research published this week by Chinese security giant Kihu360. Greg, what do you think of that APT name? I think it's incredibly interesting in that the eagle comes to mind in that what country could Kihu be referring to with eagle? Like, there are no attributions made in the report, and it's a really interesting target there. There was also an interesting target that they were looking at the Columbia National Institute for the Blind, which, why? <laughs> like, yeah. like, that seems that's, so... Yeah, that's different. So small, um, but... Is that why it's stuck blind, Eagle? I, I can't believe that didn't jump out to me before. There you go. <laughs> wow. Just completely over my head. Maybe I'm the blind one. Um, no, the, the, the name overall, I would say from, like, my favorites, it's okay on a scale of 1 to 10. I'd give it like a 6, I'd say. I, I don't know what I would name this overall, but I, I think that do better. You could do better. They could have done better for sure. I liked High Eagle better. <laughs> 
So Germany-based Rips Technologies helped WordPress plug a big hole that allows for malicious script to be inserted into the popular publishing software's image database. Websites running any WordPress version prior to 4.9.9 are vulnerable, and Rips said the flaw has existed for about six years. Yes, that, that is six. Wow. An attacker who gains access to an account with at least author privileges on a target WordPress site can execute arbitrary PHP code on the underlying server, leading to a full remote takeover. The vulnerability also potentially can be exploited through third-party WordPress plugins. Jen, can you name a buggier platform than WordPress? This is just amazing. Six years. That's incredible when you think about the sheer number of sites that are powered on wordpress WordPress, yeah you you know the lion's share of them are not updated Mm. up to i think wordpress is up to like 5.0.3 or something oh and then people are definitely not updating yeah this is uh a path traversal bug that when I was reading through it, if I can pull, I've said this before on this podcast, if I can pull off your bug, like if I can do it myself without, I I have a very rudimentary coding base. I Mm -hmm. understand this stuff, obviously, because I write about it for, I'm not, I, I do not have technical chops. Let's put it that way. So if I can read the technical report and go, Oh, I know how to do that. That that's that, that's a bad bug. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a pretty bad bug. So um, update, well, update your WordPress. WordPress before, is getting updated. Uh, before I hypothetically jump back in there and start messing around. With, oh, please do. With uh, path traversal bugs. I'll pick a website for you to hack into later. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> A security researcher who found an old bug in the LastPass password manager was kicked off the BugCrowd platform for for breaching its terms of services when he talked to a reporter about his research instead of the company. The researcher, Adrian Benerich, told CyberScoop he wants to be reinstated and help improve BugCrowd's terms of service, which he described as overly broad. I think some information can get lost in the whole process of using a third-party platform, he said. BugCrowd, a widely used clearinghouse for reporting software flaws, said it was open to feedback and considered reinstating Benaric. Greg, what's up with the disclosure issue here? So I think that this is really interesting. So to back up a little bit, there was a really interesting research report that came from Benaric's company that looked at a bunch of flaws in all of the password managers that we use. LastPass. One password, Dashlane, KeyPass. Talked about uh, a bunch of the different ways where there are flaws, specifically that if you messed around with the memory in a computer, you could pull some passwords. Like they were basically sure. stored in plain text yeah. in, in the memory. It was a pretty sophisticated bug, and you would have to have access to a machine that had the password manager on it in order to pull that information off. But at the same time, it's still a, a, a pretty big flaw, but a bunch of these password managers have their own bug bounty programs, including LastPass. So when the researcher reached out to uh, the Washington Post, was the first to report on this research. Back up really fast. Okay. So was he? So he's on the Bug Crowd platform, who's got some sort of bounty program with LastPass. Was this guy working on that bug bounty program with LastPass? So that was LastPass's problem. The terms of service of Bug Crowd's bug bounty program with LastPass is you need to talk to us. You don't go to any other third party with this vulnerability. 
including the press. So LastPass called BugCrowd and was like, kick this guy off the platform. He's not playing our, by our terms of service. Uh, we don't want him on our system. And BugCrowd's terms of service are pretty cut and dry and saying, yeah. okay, if you do not follow that, not only do you lose privileges for the company bounty program that you're working on, you're just kicked off our platform Got it. overall. Which I, I get where BugCrowd is coming from. They're not going to make exceptions all the time for all of their customers. Their customers, like LastPass, pay them a bunch of money to set this stuff up. So I, I get where Bug where Bug Crowd is coming from. For LastPass to turn around and sort of snitch on this guy seems to be a little bit much to me. So LastPass has been on Bug Crowd's platform for a while. And they, they've probably paid out tons of bounties. But at the same time, this just felt a little bit, I don't know, I, I just feel like LastPass snitched. Like, he didn't sell this out into the wild. He didn't do anything. He talked to a reporter. Like, we're going to do these stories anyway. Like, obviously, because I'm a reporter, I get a little bit, I, I bristle when stuff like this happens. But I, I just felt it to be, I keep, snitch keeps coming to my mind. Like, you snitched on a researcher that's trying to help you out. Come on. I don't know. Didn't the researcher sort of snitch on the company by going to a reporter? Uh, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question. I just think it's a matter of the way that they handled it. I mean, there are other companies that had flaws that were part of this report as well. I mean, 1Password didn't turn around and get all angry about it. Dashlane didn't get all angry about it. Like, it's almost kind of a PR thing as well, where it's like, do we really want to handle it that way? I mean, even the Washington Post story, it's not like the Washington Post story came out and said, oh, password managers are bad. Like, this is a severe flaw, like run for the hills. No, actually, the story, I think the headline on the story was like, password managers have flaws. You should still use them. That That's pretty even-handed. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, I, yeah. No, and I get, I sort of get both sides. Um, you know, certainly I hope that something that's important to me in terms of keeping me secure has a big flaw. I'm hoping somebody like outs it so that I know to stop using it or I know to figure out some updates or switch to something else. Um, but at the same time, I guess if I'm a company using something like Bug Crowd to um, become more secure, I'm assuming that. Um, people are it's also showing me the just, flaws so I can fix them. It's also just there's so much noise around vulnerability disclosure and responsible disclosure yeah. now that like these stories keep popping up where a researcher is trying to do the right thing and somewhere along the line somebody gets pissed off and the researcher ends up taking the brunt of the anger. And it just like nobody's going to get better yeah if that's the way that this stuff goes down i just we have these systems set up and then the system goes a little bit haywire and then it's just another like bullet point and saying why would i even bother with any sort of responsible disclosure this way that and that's why i i, I sort of bristle at this whole thing like we've been here before there are plenty of examples out there of bad vulnerability disclosures that didn't have to be bad. Right. Just if somebody's coming, I, I like I, I cannot wrap my head around that. If somebody is just coming to you saying, I found a flaw and that's all they want. They're not trying to extort you. They don't want to check. They're just like, hey, this is pretty bad. You should do something about this. 
and then turning around and getting angry at that person. I, I, I don't understand the logic there at all. I just, I really, really don't. I don't understand how we've been covering this for but two wait, to three years, and wait, I feel like it goes they, back even further than that. But they didn't just turn around and say, hey, last pass, something's wrong. They turned around and said, hey, last pass, something is wrong. But hey, Washington Post, something's wrong. There's also right? that, and, and if you go in our story, because we talked to Ben Narek, the researcher, and there was a there's a timeline there that the story isn't in front of me. I, I apologize. I, I'm not sure on the timeline right now, but the timeline is definitive in the story where he wasn't getting feedback, whether it was from Bug Crowd or LastPass at all on anything, even though he was working through the Bug Crowd platform, that he finally turned around to the post and was like, okay. Like, I, this needs to get out there. Got it. No one's, they weren't doing anything about it, so he took action. Right. Yeah, so, okay. So he, I mean, that's fair. Yeah, to, be, to be fair, he understands why Bug Crowd kicked him off. And he, like he said, like we talked about, he wants to work with the company to figure out a way to get reinstated and make sure that this doesn't happen again because he does want to play by the rules. Yeah. I'm personally saying that I think that this entire process just is another bullet point in saying vulnerability disclosure is not really great like it, it just it, it still needs to be improved interesting so to the funding side of things it was an incredibly busy week so let's get into it first the big one this week palo alto networks acquired demisto for a total purchase price of 560 million dollars which will be paid out in cash and stock the addition of Demisto's orchestration and automation technologies will be added to Palo Alto's network application framework strategy, and they'll just have another bullet in the gun when it comes to automating security. On the smaller side of things, Microsoft Ventures Fund M12 and Viola Ventures have led a Series A investment round for NS Knox that totals $15 million. Uh, NS Knox was founded by former CyberArk CEO Alon Cohen. And they guard against corporate payment systems, against insider threats, cyber fraud, and data manipulation attempts. Armorblocks came out of stealth this week and announced a $16.5 million Series A. They use natural language understanding and deep learning to automatically create and adapt policies, measure, measure risk exposure, prevent attacks, data loss. A lot of automation there and really, really interesting. Their logo looks like Optimus Prime for some reason. <laughs> Um, familiar to listeners here, Bandura Cyber, we talked to their chief strategy officer, Todd Weller, a couple weeks ago. They announced a Series A round of funding. The round was led by 10-4 Holdings with participation from GrowTech Ventures, Gula Tech Adventures, of course, and Cultivation Capital. And NormShield, provider of comprehensive on-demand cyber risk scorecards for enterprises, announced the close of a $3.5 million seed funding round, and we'll talk to NormShield CEO Mohammed Jabril a little bit later, but Jen, lots going on here. What do you like? What don't you like? What I'm really interested in is what the revenue number was for Demisto. I've heard um, sort of the rumor on the street is that it's a pretty low number, so I think that's really interesting. Um, I think any company coming out of stealth mode that raises 16.5 is also really interesting. Um, I have not looked at the the um, backgrounds of the founders, but I'm guessing um, that the CEO and CTO probably come out of something um, really interesting. Um, and um, on the Demisto thing, their yeah. last round before they were bought was 43 million Series C, 
I think their total funding was 69 million. So do you consider that to be low based on what they ended up turning around and getting or are going to get? Is that, I mean, 560 million is a pretty good exit no matter what, just looking at it as a vacuum, but is it a good exit based on what their funding numbers seem to have been? I don't know. So $69 million and their valuation has got to be at least triple that, maybe four times that. So it's still a good exit. I mean, everybody's got a return on their investment plus some. But I think, I mean, it sounds like the story really here is is what the revenue numbers might have been. But if they raise $69 million in venture, I can't imagine the rumor on the street is true about their revenue numbers. What about these, this series of Series A funds? Any of these companies interest you? From a you know hot market standpoint, because I'll I'll be honest. I mean, Bandura, we've talked about what sure. they've done before, yeah. but the Armor Blocks and the NS Knox for me just seems like uh, we talk about a crowded marketplace all the time. It just seems like this is another example of that. <laughs> I mean, you have two companies that are yeah. jumping into something that that I feel like we've we've talked about numerous times and doesn't seem like they separate themselves from the market at all. I yet. mean, there's just not a lot of new new things in cyber, right? There's just so many companies doing exactly the same things, using the buzzwords of deep learning and machine learning and, you know, name your thing. So no, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's that interesting, but I do think it's a it's a big number for coming out of stealth mode. It'd be more interesting if it was that number on the East Coast. That number on the West Coast is, you know seems like same old same old but I mean I guess we'll see um but no neither stand out to me as like oh wow we really need this right okay all right <laughs> lots of money not not a lot of uh hype so far for these companies but norm shield norm shield we will talk about coming up in our interview with Mohammed Jabril so stay tuned Okay, joining us now is Mahmoud Jabrell, the CEO and co-founder of NormShield. Mahmoud, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Much appreciated. So before we get into NormShield, talk to us a little bit about your career. How did you get to this point? How long have you been in cybersecurity? Talk to us uh, about your experiences. Uh, well, I am um, sort of your, uh, you might say, uh, your traditional sort of an IT guy. I'm an engineer by training, and I spent, I would say, probably the past 25 years before we started NormShield in uh, various IT management roles. Uh, my my last uh, job before we started was I was the CEO, I'm um, CIO, Chief Information Security Officer of a company called uh, Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which is a uh, the leading biomedical research entity uh, uh, in the U.S. So I was uh, the head of IT there about five and a half years. And before that, I spent seven years with the Ford Foundation as chief technology officer. And and way before that, I spent about 10 years with uh, a company called Thermoking Corporation, which is currently actually a subsidiary of Ingersoll Rand. And in all of those companies, um, you know, my job was to manage IT organizations, systems, and infrastructure, uh, mostly around the globe. So I've had the privilege of uh, managing IT organizations in, you know, literally in all continents, um, you know, U.S., Asia, uh, Europe, Africa, 
uh, you know, Latin America and all of that. Uh, in fact, uh, one probably interesting experience was that in one of those jobs, uh, I had at, at one time we had data centers in uh, Beijing, Lagos, and um, uh, Lagos, Nigeria, and Moscow. Wow, okay. So if if you if there were uh, three countries that you should always be very cautious from a from a from a security perspective, uh, are definitely China, Russia, and Nigeria. So uh, that's sort of my 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 background. I consider myself kind of a uh, more of a techie, uh, uh, a problem solver, and somebody who has been basically uh, solving complex problems in that relate to IT, sort of at the at the crossroads of IT and business, you might say. So, tell us a little bit about NormShield. So, NormShield, uh, uh, we started the company in. We actually started thinking about it in. Uh, in late summer 2015, late sort of late summer 2015, and we launched the company at the beginning of 2016. And Normsheet is focused on the area of cybersecurity called third-party risk or supply. Some people refer to it as supply chain risk, which is basically uh, monitoring the external cyber risk of um, your trusted third parties, whether they may be suppliers or business partners or, you know, other business entities that you have a relationship with. Um, you know, almost every organization of company or company, uh, you know, has a trusted uh, number of trusted third parties that hold uh, either their uh, confidential data uh, or things like uh, PII or sometimes even that have that are connected to their network and that have access, uh, you know, to their complete uh, in network and IT infrastructure. So if one of those third parties gets compromised, it's basically the same as comp compromising the company. So we enable the companies or organizations to uh, assess and monitor uh, the cyber risk posture of their third parties. In fact, all of our customers also use our product to monitor their own external cyber risk. In other words, what you might say, their cyber risk posture. And the way we do that is actually we use uh, um, a, a basically uh, what's called cyber reconnaissance. So uh, there is a fairly well-known concept called open source intelligence. So there are a lot of entities that collect uh, information about cyber, about dark web, social media. You, you've heard of reputation sites of or uh, internet-wide scanners and all of that. So uh, we've basically developed a better tool for aggregating all that information and giving companies and organizations better visibility to their own external cyber risk or, more importantly, the cyber risks posed by their third parties. So when you say third party, obviously we're talking about a lot of different things there. So what exactly goes into your measurement when you talk about Norm Shields third party, you know, risk assessments there? What are we measuring? So so we're focused on technical risk. There are a lot of companies out there that look at business risk or let's say, you know, has this supplier been uh, let's say 
do they, uh, you know, do they have financial problems? Are they being sued and all that stuff? We don't look at the business risk. We look at their technical risk. So what we're looking at is we're basically externally assessing a company's digital footprint. When I say digital footprint, I mean, this could be your websites. It could be, uh, you know, what's called uh, uh, systems, you know, DMZ or, or in other words, systems that are outside your firewall and that are accessible from the internet. Could be your cloud applications. It could be your social media. But there's also uh, a lot of other intelligence. So, for example, uh, what do the hackers already know about you? Are uh, let's say, uh, so if you go to uh, the dark web, dark deep web, and all of that, is there any information that uh, exists or that's actually sometimes for sale that relates to your company or your organization? So we actually aggregate all of that information. Um, you know, uh, and I'm talking about a lot of information and we aggregate that and we've just basically developed a better tool for collecting that information, analyzing it and presenting the results in a way that sort of is easy to consume and scorecards that are easy to use and present risks in a prioritized way so that the security teams in a given company can actually look at this and uh, essentially quantify the risk. So sometimes, you know, they would say, okay, this is a serious risk and maybe they, we need to immediately reach out to this third party and make sure they remediate this problem. Or sometimes they might say, this is a low risk enough that we can accept it. And every once in a while, there might it might actually be a false positive, but we might report something that's not accurate and they can say, okay, you know, we've checked this and this is actually... Uh, a false positive. So one of the things that actually makes our product better than the competitors is we actually report a lot less false positives compared than uh, compared to our competitor, you know, key competitors in the marketplace. So what are the 10 risk categories that you look at? So we look at things like, so you can actually put a look at, you can look, you can divide what we're looking at into three broad categories. One is you've heard the term vulnerability management. Mm -hmm. So that just means, you know, is the company or the supplier patching their systems? Are they updating their systems? So we look at all of their systems that are internet accessible, whether they are servers that are in their DMZ, cloud applications, websites. We, we analyze all of that and see if any of those systems are outdated or have not been patched. The second one is misconfigurations. In fact, that's a much bigger problem than MPAC systems. IT people make mistakes uh, simply because they're either too busy or sometimes people don't have the right skills. So they misconfigure things. So we actually detect system misconfigurations, whether it's your firewall being misconfigured or a cloud application or a website or something like that. And the third one is what's called cyber threats. So cyber threat intelligence is what really, information that exists either in the dark web or in social media that might have some sort of a negative negative connotation for a company. Either it can be used to hack the company or to hack uh, a company's supplier or something like that, or it could actually impact your reputation in a different way. Maybe it's a disclosure of, of a confidential information that you don't want disclosed. So, so we basically collect these three types of information and present it in a way that is easy to use and that uh, and prioritize based on the risk level. 
Let's talk about that prioritization part a little bit. Does the scorecard point out, you know, the problem areas when it comes to this risk and then give suggestions on how to fix it? I mean, I know you aren't going to be able to fix everybody's IT system. Obviously, it's unique across different enterprises, but are there any suggestions that Norm Shield makes in order to fix some of the problems that you point out? So, in fact, very good question. In fact, we specifically do not want to fix problems for customers. We kind of see that as sort of the fox watching the hen house. We, a lot of companies actually outsource their, uh, they use managed service providers or they uh, outsource their remediation or up, you know, you know, systems management to third parties. We actually kind of wear another set of eyes that gives them visibility and, and, and alerts them when those third parties are not doing their job. So what we actually do is we identify the problems, okay? We prioritize them and we give remediation recommendations. So we sort of tell you, well, this system is not patched and uh, the risk level of this, you know, not patching this system is on a scale of one to 10. And let's say it's uh, at a nine and it can be basically compromised by uh, a hacker with fairly low skill level. And by the way, this is how you fix it. Okay. And because of the fact that you're, you, our system, you're buying a service from us, a mon- we're a cloud-based monitoring service. So you're, you're buying monthly scorecards. You're scanning your system either continuously or on a weekly, monthly, whatever, whatever sort of a, uh, schedule that you want to create. It's, it's very flexible. So if, if you sort of say, okay, uh, I fixed this problem, the next scan is going to show whether you fixed it or not. So, so the idea is to continuously give you visibility to what your external, external cyber risks are, whether they're for your suppliers or even for your company and prioritize based on risk level. And each one of those has a uh, has clear recommendations on how to remediate that problem. So when you talk to customers and they sign up for your product, obviously you're in the marketplace because you're trying to solve a problem. So not everybody's scores are going to be a 10 out of 10 or an A plus or anything like that. But I'm interested to know from your customer base, what are the biggest risks inside the third-party ecosystem? Where do companies tend to have flaws when it comes to what you're measuring? Inter- very good question. So, interestingly, that when we so first and foremost, we generate scorecards that show letter grades. So we have two scorecards. So what we have our quick assessment, what we call our rapid scorecard that has 10 risk categories, 10 C, so things like, you know, patch management and credential management or website security, stuff like that. And then we have our comprehensive scorecard, which is more of a deeper analysis that actually has 20 categories, right? So if you uh, sort of look at um, the scorecards that we are, we, we, we are sort of uh, generating, we are, essentially assessing and uh, discovering and assessing 
the first step is discovering their internet footprint. So in order for us to do an effective assessment, we have to sort of identify who that company or organization is in cyber. What is their digital footprint? So originally, our expectation was and our objective was to give the best assessment so that customers can see what the risks are, identify and, and sort of mitigate and to make sure that they're not that low-hanging fruit or their suppliers are not. What we actually discovered was most companies don't actually know what their internet footprint looks like. So some large customers actually surprised us to the point when, when we went, when they bought, you know, when they signed up uh, with us and we said, we're delighted you're our customer. Why did you select NormShield? The feedback wasn't, hey, you uh, gave us the best cyber, external cyber risk assessment and we're very happy with your results and all of that. Uh, in fact, all those things were positive, but even more surprising was the internet footprint that we presented to them, their digital footprint that we presented to them surprised them so much that they said, wow, we don't even know how we present ourselves to the internet. So in other words, in this day and age, if you, if you can imagine a large company with a lot of employees and in all over the globe, you have all of these different, uh, let's say, employees and third parties that are creating websites. They are going signing up with cloud services. So IT security people in any company are not really aware of what's going on out there. And because of the fact that we have a tool that gives them a very good visibility of what their digital footprint is, that in itself is actually something a selling point for us. And it's something that customers actually love that we give them a easy to understand view of their digital footprint. Okay, obviously, once they go beyond that, then the quality of the results, the, the risks that we're presenting, the prioritized risks and recommend remediation recommendations are also very valuable. But we never expected the digital footprint itself to be a, a selling point for us. How does this fit into um, cyber insurance? So we have, uh, uh, we have several insurance companies that are using our product and they use it actually for two purposes. One, we actually have uh, a couple of companies that are using our product to actually assess companies before they underwrite new cyber insurance policies. And then we act, those same companies actually also monitor their portfolio companies. So they actually run quarterly scorecards for each uh, of their customers. And one company actually, um, you know, basically reduces uh, premiums if a company improves security to, to beyond, you know, above a certain threshold. And, you know, obviously they don't, you know, the point that they don't care about um, the premium, their objective is that they never want to have a payout situation. So they're basically enticing uh, or incenting the, their, their customers to pay attention to, to, to their cybersecurity. But we here at Securiosity end our interviews on a random question. So Oscars are this weekend. Want to know of the movies that you have seen, not necessarily the Oscar movies, though if you've seen the Oscar movies, great. What movie have you enjoyed the most in the past year? Um, wow. So uh, I'm sort of a, you know, uh, how should I say? Uh, I only have three hobbies. You know, I, I like to read, so I'm an avid reader. And I, 
in fact, lately, an avid listener of audiobooks. I love audiobooks. And I, I love to travel. I'm one of those people who considers himself sort of a global citizen. So you kind of drop me in Hong Kong tomorrow and I'm perfectly at home. And the okay. third one is uh, I'm a soccer addict. So I love watching soccer. And I, I'm probably one of the few people that watch soccer games in all, you know, whether they're the British Premier League or, or La Liga in Spain or whether it's the Latin American teams or, you know, the Africa Cup or Asia Cup. I watch everything, soccer. So those are my three hobbies. I don't really remember the last time I saw a movie. <laughs> okay. I don't, I, I don't, I don't who's your Premier League squad? Yeah, but I took my kids uh, when, what's that movie? Um, I can't, I, uh, I don't even remember the name, but the Marvel one, the, 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 um, the one based in Africa. Black Panther? Black, Black Panther. So I, I took my kids to that movie my wife takes the kids most of the time. Uh, God bless her. She 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 she's the one that mostly takes them to the movies. But um, I remember taking the, going to that movie with them. That's all right. Hey, that's you seem like a busy man. So uh, you may not know this. That's actually up for best picture this year. Is it? So you you've you've <laughs> in a roundabout way you've answered the well, question. That's sort, of, so. that's sort of news to me because I first and foremost I didn't even know the Oscars were. What, what is it tonight or when are the Oscars? Sunday. Sunday. So I didn't even know that. And and secondly, I don't even remember the name of the movie. But that tells you my wife, who is also as busy as I am and, and has an IT job that's, uh, let's say, that kind of competes with mine. Uh, so that tells you that she, she's doing a better job than I am because uh, she's the one taking the kids to the movies. Okay. Well, very busy man. Uh, I'm glad that you actually carved out some time to actually see one of the Oscar movies for the sake of this question. But uh, Mahmoud, thanks for joining us, telling us a little bit about Norm Shield, and hopefully we will talk to you in the future. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Mohammed for joining us and talking about Norm Shield. All right. That's it for this week, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, stay curious.